I'll invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 and Luke chapter 10. We've been uh, teaching a series for the last uh, several weeks on uh, spiritual dominion. And we've been using as a text Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And then we've also looked a little bit over in, uh, a couple of times I guess, over into Luke chapter 10 as well. So we want to begin there this, uh, this morning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I've said this before, but image and likeness must be two different things. We think of appearance with both of those words, but he's really talking about the, the spiritual nature. The fact that man was made a spirit being which is in God's class. He's the only thing that's made a spirit being uh, in the, the uh, Genesis account of creation. He's the only spirit being that God made. And therefore, God made him in his own class of being. He said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Notice the purpose for creating man as a spirit being. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Over in Luke chapter 10, we know what's, uh, what happened shortly thereafter. Well, we say shortly thereafter. Shortly in the Genesis account, uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate of the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil that they were commanded not to eat. And God said that the consequence of that, he said, dying thou shalt die. Literally in the Hebrew it says, dying thou shalt die. King James translates it like this. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because they didn't die that day. So what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. Literally what he's saying is you'll be separated from God. That's what spiritual death is. It's separation from God. That's why hell is hell. Because of separation from God. The flames of hell doesn't make hell what it is. Hell is separation from God. If there was no torment in hell, it would still be hell. Because it's separation from God. That's what spiritual death is. And so man fell into spiritual death. It fell under the dominion of spiritual death. Now when Jesus came on the scene, there were, there were many others. We looked at, uh, at that several weeks ago as well. Moses superseded the laws of nature. He parted the Red Sea for example, well, I don't know how exactly how you do that, except that God's with you. Joshua stopped the sun and the moon in place for a day. Well, how do you do that? There are laws of nature that are orderly, that always work, that were superseded. The law of gravity was, uh, was superseded by Elijah, or uh, was, no, it was Elisha, I guess, that, uh, that threw a stick into the water and an axe head floated floated back to the top. Something that had been dropped in the water floated back to the top. So we see even under the old covenant days that men who were granted a promise of righteousness didn't obtain it on their own, but a promise of righteousness because they kept the law of Moses. Those were men that overcame or superseded even the laws of nature. They did supernatural things regarding their enemies, winning battles over their enemies, as well as conquering the laws of nature, the physical laws of nature that always work. Just because they had a promise of righteousness. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he does things that nobody ever did before. People are aware of it. John chapter 3 talks about Nicodemus coming to him in the night. I guess he was afraid of the others, the other uh, Jewish leaders and rulers. But he was one of the, the council, one of the very ones that made up the council that crucified Jesus. Uh, at least at that point in time, they, they switched from, uh, from year to year. So he may not have been part of the group that literally crucified him, but he was part of the group uh, the council that did several years later. And so anyway, he said, 
Jesus, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do these miracles that you're doing except God be with him. And you know, I wish people were smart enough to realize that today. I mean, that seems elementary, but, but that seems to get by most people because God will do something miraculous and people will explain it away. Well, Nicodemus didn't. He said, we know you come from God because nobody can do these miracles ex- that you're doing except God be with him. Well, what kind of miracles did Jesus do? He multiplied loaves and fishes. That supersedes the laws of nature, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but my refrigerator doesn't expand. The food in my refrigerator doesn't expand from week to week unless I go to the store and replenish it. But Jesus prayed and multiplied loaves and fishes. He turned water into wine. He walked on the water. He healed sickness and disease. He caused the blind to see and the lame to walk. He's overcoming physical and even natural laws that never change. Because he was the righteousness of God on the earth. Now Jesus delegated that authority. It wasn't something that was unique to him. I mean we could just stop and say as many do. Many in the church world do. They just say well you know Jesus was the son of God. And so he did the things that nobody else can do. And and that was it. But Jesus delegated that authority to his disciples. Who were not sons of God. They weren't even good, very good at keeping the law. But because they were descendants of Abraham and because their their intent in keeping the law, their motive was right, they had a promise of righteousness that would be accomplished by Jesus' resurrection. And so Jesus delegated that authority to them. He gave them authority over sickness and disease as well. When Jesus wasn't there, people would come and they would heal the sick just like Jesus healed the sick. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus sends 70 people out to go to towns before him He tells them what to do. He says, go into the cities, and if the cities will receive you, heal the sick that are therein. See, the city's attitude, the people in the city, uh, their attitude toward Jesus sending the, the 70, their attitude toward the work that Jesus commissioned to be done had everything to do with the results that would take place. I wish people would figure that out today, too. Things don't just happen because God wants them to happen. In fact, the Bible says God wills for every man to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if everything happened just because God wanted it to, be ha- wanted it to happen, everybody would get saved. But they don't. Why not? Because your attitude, your choice, your decision is what di- dictates, not God's. So Jesus sends the 70 out, tells them to heal the sick, and they come back. And they rejoiced because they said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us, unto us in your name. Now, Jesus, if you, if you read earlier in the 10th chapter of Luke, you'll find out Jesus didn't say one word about casting out devils or, or do anything about the devil whatsoever. He just told them to heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But they come back and they say, we found out this works even on casting out devils. And Jesus said, behold, well, I guess I better start in verse 18. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, he's not saying lightning is, Satan fell as lightning when you used the, the name of Jesus to cast out devils. He's saying the reason it works is because Satan is defeated. He was defeated and cast out of heaven from God long before the earth was ever recreated and Adam and Eve put in the middle of it. So he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. What does that mean? Now, it means that Satan has authority here on the earth, but it's not his. He took it from man. God intended for man to have the dominion here on the earth, but Satan stole it from him. He tricked him and stole it from him. It's not Satan's authority. 
Jesus, in the three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. And so he recognizes that he does have authority. He recognizes that there is a position that Satan has here on the earth. But it was not granted to him. And so it's temporary. It was not given to him. In fact, it was given to man. And it will be restored back unto man. And that's why Jesus came. So he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And then he said, verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, these two words, power, are two different Greek words. Both translated power in the English. But the first word, power, really means authority. The second word, power, really means power or ability. So he said, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, folks, I would submit something to you for a minute for you to consider. If, if the church just believed that one scripture, think about how that would change everything. Now, some would say, well, yeah, but he just gave that to the 70. Really? Just to the 70? After they finished what he told them to do? They've come back. They're not, we don't have any record that they were ever sent out again. So he waits for him to come back and says, now I give you authority over all the power of the devil. Would that make sense to anybody? Of course not. What's he saying? He's saying the name of Jesus that I told you to heal the sick in is the key to to authority over all the power of the enemy. Now, we've talked about the difference in power and authority. For example, we've used one example of um, uh, one that we're probably most familiar with is uh, a traffic cop. A policeman stands in an intersection and holds up his hand and and waves traffic one way and stops traffic the other way. Well, he doesn't have the power or the ability to stop even the smallest of cars. But he has the authority. He's given the authority because we recognize his uniform, we recognize the badge, and so forth. Now, if somebody else is standing out in in the intersection directing traffic and they're not wearing the uniform, not wearing the badge, you might think it's some kids playing a prank or something. But we recognize the signs of his authority. The name of Jesus is the sign of our authority. There's, a, um, uh, there, there's a, a truth that we need to recognize too. And that is if we don't give any credibility to what's behind the sign of that authority, we won't stop. And for that reason, we might just plow through an intersection that somebody's standing out there trying to direct traffic is, you know, him doing his thing. If we don't recognize him as a policeman, we might not stop when he holds up his hand. Why? Because we don't recognize that he has any authority. We don't recognize that there is any power behind the action that he's taking to to direct traffic, stop traffic, and let, let him go or whatever the case is. We'll obey the traffic light instead of what his hand says to do. And so you need to realize authority has to be based in power. Authority and power are two different things, but there has to be a basis of power for us to use or recognize authority. There's a story they tell that when uh, in uh, Great Britain, when um, uh, Queen Victoria was the Queen of England, uh, Gladstone was the Prime Minister, and he, he, was, uh, uh, he went to her one day at the palace and, and um, uh, brought something that had passed a bill that had passed and it had to have her signature to be signed into law well he brought it before and and you know he told her what it was and told her what it would do and she didn't like it so she said i I don't want to sign this so he tried to convince her and she said no i'm not going to sign this and he said your majesty you must sign this 
And she said, sir, I'm the queen of England. And he got quiet and looked at her real kindly. And he said, yes, your majesty, but I'm the people of England. She reconsidered and signed the bill. Because she recognized the power of the people could overthrow the monarchy. She recognized the authority that he's standing in is as a representative of power that's greater than even hers. As the queen of England. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. There, is, there are a few subjects that are more misunderstood, if we might say, than the authority of the believer. Than the dominion, the spiritual dominion that the believer holds. Now, there's no question that the Bible says we have it. No question about that whatsoever. We'll go through a lot of scriptures this morning, or or some scriptures this morning at least, that will identify very clearly, very specifically, the authority that that the Christian has, that the church has in the name of Jesus. Well, the question then has to be asked or considered, if the church has without question, according to the scripture, authority over the power of the devil, why does the devil seem to run roughshod over the church? Now, there's a misunderstanding in in many cases uh, about authority, it seems. And some would say that authority comes only through great spiritual maturity, great spiritual enlightenment, someone that comes to the place where they they see and they know and they grow to a place where they're used of God in a great way, then, then they're the ones that have authority. But the Bible doesn't say that. Others will say that authority belongs to those that are called of God to do great things. And the Bible doesn't say that either. Now, don't get me wrong. Spiritual maturity can help being um, filled with the Spirit, so to speak. Can help to recognize who we are and what we have. Called of God to do a ministry work. May provide supernatural equipment. Divine endowments of power to enable you to do what God has called you to do. But neither of those are authority. No, the Bible says that authority just traced back to one, uh, an individual makes Jesus the Lord of their lives. That's when authority begins. Now, what's also interesting to me is how the church um, accepts that physical laws, the laws of nature, are so orderly and so logical. God created the earth, and he created the earth with such logic and such detail and such order that, sp- that physical laws always work. You don't have to wait when you wake up in the morning. You don't have to test the floor to see if gravity is going to work today. You don't have to wonder if the sun's going to rise in the east and set in the west. The laws of nature work because God created them logically and in order, and He created them to always work. Well, why would we expect the spiritual laws work any different? Yet most Christians seem to have the idea that spiritual laws, if there is any such thing, spiritual laws are haphazard. That maybe authority is the result of someone who learns how to pray really well. But authority is not prevailing prayer. Spiritual authority is a spiritual law just like gravity is a natural law. And spiritual authority will always work. Now in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul begins in a great prayer. Beginning in verse 16, he says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. 
Now, folks, realize these people are already saved. He's not saying, I'm praying that you'll get saved. They are already saved. They're already spirit-filled. We know in Acts chapter 19 that the church at Ephesus began with uh, a small number of people being spirit-filled. And as a result of the work that God uh, enabled Paul to do in that place, he had the greatest revival in Ephesus than anywhere else that he went. It says that all of Asia, in the two and a half years that he was there in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the word of God from that headquarters church or ministry in Ephesus. So he's writing back to them. He knows who he's writing to. He's writing to born-again, spirit-filled believers. And he prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be given to them. Not that they'd get saved, but that they would come to know who they are. You go through the book of uh, the, the books or the letters that Paul wrote to the church, you'll find out that the vast majority of, of Paul's uh, ministry and intent in writing those letters was to give information and to pray that people would recognize who they are, not that they would have something more than they have. In other words, spiritual enlightenment seems to be a key to operating in the authority that God has given us or the spiritual laws that never change. So he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give unto them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of their understanding, another translation says the eyes of their spirit, being enlightened, that they would know what is the hope of his calling. Not that they would be called, but that they would know what it means to be called as a Christian and what God's individual plan for their lives are. And secondly, what they, they, they would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Not that they would gain some inheritance, but that they would know what the inheritance in, includes or involves. He seems to think that the church is, not, is failing to operate in a lot of things that belongs to him. If that was true in Paul's day, I wonder if it's true today. Emphatically, Yes. I don't think there's anything greater on the list that the church fails to recognize of what belongs to them than spiritual authority. He goes on and prays for the third thing, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God would cause them to know, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power. Now, what power is he talking about? The power that was shown us toward usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So he's talking about that we would know the exceeding greatness of his power, meaning or defined as resurrection power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, where did it place him? Far above, verse 21, far above. Everybody say far above. How far is far above? More than a little bit, isn't it? We're not talking about an equal position here, are we? Far above means it's not even close in my thinking. Far above all. Everybody say all. Not a few, not a little bit. Far above, not even close. Over all principality and power. This word power is authorities. And might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Folks, what I want you to see is very simply this. The authority that the Bible is going to tell you in these, uh, the next few verses, the, the authority that the Bible identifies that belongs to you 
is backed by greater power than anything in the universe. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Now, not only in this world, but every name that is named in the ages to come. In other words, he's saying that the authority that we have in the name of Jesus, the power that was shown, the power that, that, that delivered that authority or that backs that authority that's given to the church is greater than anything that the devil can put his name on, anything, any name that can be attached to natural things here on the earth, and, just for good measure, greater than any name that will ever be named in eternity. Now, let me ask you a question. When Jesus went to the cross, the Bible says that the devil had no clue what was going on. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing to me how so many Christians seem to give the devil so much credit. Oh, he's so smart. He's so tricky. He's so powerful. The devil had no clue what he was doing when he put Jesus on the cross. The Bible says very specifically that it, had he known, he wouldn't have crucified him. He wouldn't have inspired other people to crucify Jesus, to take his life, if he had only known. Well, now, with all the demons that he has, with all the people, the, the, the evil spirits at his disposal, if he's not smart enough to figure out God's plan when God told from the beginning that there would be a sacrifice, if he's not smart enough to figure that out, then why is it that you think he's so smart to figure out everything that you're doing? Folks, I've got to tell you something. I don't consider it too bright to rebel against God. But I would consider him to even be more stupid because he didn't have the veil of the flesh. For him, for him, God wasn't invisible. For him, the, the, the unseen powers of the world were seen. He saw very clearly. He saw the throne of God. He saw God create the earth in the beginning. Well, he didn't see that, but he saw the, the result of God creating the earth in the beginning. God was the only one around when that happened. But Satan saw the result, and he saw the, the, the thrones that God established. He saw the throne that God gave him. He said himself that the, the, the Bible says that the reason Satan rebelled, he says five things. He's, one of them was, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. So he must have had a throne below the heavens. And then he winds up saying, I will be like God. How smart do you have to be to think that you as a created being, an angel, can make yourself greater than God? I, I'm, I'm not real careful about saying this. I know some people don't like this kind of terminology, but because I have no respect for the devil, I don't, I'm not careful to say he's an idiot. He's still an idiot. He didn't know what was going on. He knows a lot less about God than you do. And so when the devil finally sees what's going on, when the devil finally sees that Jesus in the sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, the physical death on the cross, and then the fact that he was sent to the lowest part of the earth, hell, in other words, he had to, if he was your substitute, that means he had to die the death you would have died. Or else he's not a worthy substitute. He could not have died the death of the righteous man, meaning to go to Abraham's bosom, the place of the righteous dead, and pay for your sins because you're not the righteous dead. 
you wouldn't have fallen into that category. Especially as Gentiles. We had no law of Moses. We have nothing to, to, to keep up with or to adhere to. He died for the sins of the world. Not the sins of the righteous covenant partners with God in the Old Testament. He died for the sins of the world. Which means he had to die the death of the unrighteous. That's hell. And the Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn of the first begotten from the dead. He wasn't the firstborn of the first begotten from physical death. Jesus raised Lazarus. There were Old Testament people that were raised from the dead. So if he's the first begotten or firstborn from the dead, it has to mean spiritual death. He was the first one born from spiritual death. So when Satan finally sees what's going on, when he finally sees that this was all God's plan and he's played right into it by crucifying the Son of God, when he finally sees that, can you imagine the spiritual force that he would exert, the spiritual opposition that he would bring to bear? And, and I'm, I'm speculating because I don't know what that would be. I don't know how that would work. Maybe we'll get a chance to see it. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that we'll have reruns in heaven. Maybe we'll get a chance to watch that in operation. I'd like to see that, wouldn't you? But can you imagine the spiritual force, the spiritual opposition, everything that Satan has, every authority, every bit of his authority, every bit of his power coming to bear to keep this from happening. Yet the Bible says that the power of God, the display of God's power, swamped the power of the devil. Now look back to verse 20. Let me show you something. The power that he's talking about, oh, it's verse 19, I'm sorry. Notice one of the things that God wants you to see. He wants you to see, Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray. In other words, here's a Holy Ghost inspired prayer. God is inspiring Paul to pray this. And then the Holy Ghost inspires Paul to write that he prayed this. And then God saves this throughout the ages for you to know. That says it's pretty important to me. Notice what he prayed. He prayed that God, that uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation would come to you so that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of his, of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. There are four words in this verse that are translated or mean some form of power. That you'd know the exceeding greatness of his power. That's the word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. It means ability. According to the working, the working, the word working means energy. It's translated power in other places in the New Testament. Might, mighty power. The first word mighty means strength. And the second word power means might. Most translations translate it the strength of his might. Four words are used in verse 19 to describe God's power. And it's the greatest recorded working of God's power in all of Scripture. Now, why in the world would the Holy Ghost inspire Paul to use four different words that means power in some form or another? Why would he do that? Because he's trying to show that the power behind the authority that we have in the name of Jesus is unmatched in the universe. It's so great that he says that it's caused Jesus to be raised far above all power, 
of the devil. All principality and power and might and dominion. Everything the devil's got. He's saying that the power of God that resides in you. And notice notice that phrase, to usward who believe. To usward who believe. Now, folks, let let me suggest something to you. And that is this. Jesus didn't need the power the devil had in heaven. There's only one reason that he needed to obtain the power of sin and death, which is what the power of the devil had, which is what the Bible says you're delivered from. There's only one reason that he needed the power of sin and death, and that was to set you free. Adam falling did not affect God one way or another. I'm sure it disappointed him. I'm sure it grieved him because man was his child, and he wanted to fellowship with man, and now man is separated by sin through spiritual death. He's separated from God, and so now God has to make a way for man to have limited access back to him. But as far as God is concerned, as far as eternity is concerned, it didn't matter to God one way or the other. God's still God. He could have poured out judgment on the earth, destroyed man, and started all over. He could have made man again in a, in a form or a fashion where he couldn't have rebelled. He could have taken the attitude that, well, I'm tired of this. First, I make the angels and Satan rebels, Lucifer rebels. Then I make man and Adam rebels. Forget this, I'll make robots. Beings without free will and choice. He could have. He was justified. He was righteous in his actions should he have chosen to do so. Right? Why did he do this? Why did Jesus go to the trouble of coming to the earth and showing what authority through righteousness does and how it destroys the devil's authority or or works uh, in um, opposition to the devil's authority? Why did he show that? Why did he go to the cross and sacrifice and go through the suffering of the cross? And I'm sure the physical suffering wasn't, uh, wasn't um, uh, fun or convenient or, or pleasant in any way whatsoever. Jesus suffered greatly in physical form. But the thing that he shines away more than anything else is, is spiritual death. He comes to the place where he knows that he has to be made sin. He has to take on the very nature of sin itself if he's going to pay the price for it. So he does. Now, why does he do that? So that he can be raised from the dead to restore mankind to the original position of dominion through righteousness. He does it to us who believe. It's only for you. Jesus had no need for authority. He's in heaven. He doesn't need authority on the earth. He's the creator of the earth. He could have exacted judgment upon the earth anytime he wanted to. He did it for you. That phrase, to us were to believe. That we'd know the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Folks, that's everything. To usward who believe. And then he describes the power in four different words. In other words, it's a greater manifestation, a greater display of God's power than anything we have recorded in Scripture. Now, to me, raising the dead seems like a big deal. But that doesn't compare to this power. To me, stopping the sun and the moon when Joshua prayed seems like a big deal. Parting the Red Sea, kind of big too. You look at some of the things that happened in the Old Testament where the laws of nature that never change were superseded because of someone's prayer or someone's action. Looks like a pretty big deal. But nothing in comparison to the power that was on display when Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, here's the reason why I'm focusing on that uh, and taking time to talk about it. And that is this. 
when you exercise your authority in the name of Jesus, you may know, not know the full extent of that authority, but the devil knows the power behind it. You may be like the rookie cop that hasn't figured out yet how people are going to respond to you when you tell them to stop. You may not yet have the experience to know how people are going to respond to the badge and the uniform and the, and the gun you wear on your hip. But the devil knows. The enemy knows. If the enemy knows that your power or the power behind your authority is so much greater than anything he can do. And, and notice the way Jesus said it again in Luke ten nineteen: Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. He, he almost makes a casual statement. Yeah, your authority is greater than anything the devil can do. And nothing can by any means hurt you. The devil can't find a way to hurt you. Through the authority that you have. Uh, if I was one of the 70, I'd want to stay there for a while. I'd want to have a seminar on that. Wait a minute. You said that kind of quick. Let's go over that. Piece by piece. But they've already got some experience with it. They've healed the sick. They've cast out devils. Now that story I told you about uh, Queen Victoria and, and Prime Minister Gladstone. That's an example of what conflicting forces are like. The one with the greatest power wins. Well then why doesn't the church always win? Because the church doesn't know the power they have. Notice Paul's praying that our spiritual eyes would be opened so that we'd know the power that we have. If you don't know the power you have behind, that backs up the authority in the name of Jesus, the authority that's resident in the name of Jesus, the devil will push you and push you and push you till you give in. But the reality is very simply this. These same principalities and powers and mights and dominion are the ones that Ephesians 6 says we wrestle with. Why do we wrestle with them? Because the devil's trying to talk you out of the greatness of the power that resides in you. And if he can keep you blinded to that fact, that's why Paul's praying that our eyes would be opened. If he can keep you blinded to that fact, to that reality, then he can keep that authority from working in your life. Even though you have the power to back it up. Are you out there? Making any sense? All right. Verse 19 again, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Power, 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 which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, spiritually dead or spiritual death, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Notice what that power did. It not only raised Jesus from spiritual death, in other words, Jesus became the first person ever born again. Some people don't like to think of those terms, but that's exactly what happened. If Jesus was spiritually dead, then to be raised from the dead would mean that he was born again. Jesus was not reserving some kind of life in and of himself. If he was, then he was not made sin. It says he was made sin. He became sin. Well, if he became sin, that means he lost the life and the righteousness because of that life. That's what I think he's drawn back from in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think he's drawing back for a couple of hours of, of suffering on the cross. As bad as that might be. I think he's drawing back from spiritual death. That's what he agonizes over. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How could God forsake him? 
That's when he was made sin. That's when he was separated from God. Up until that moment in time, he could have called the angels to get him down. But once he's made sin, he's in the hands of the devil. Just like the unsaved in this world are. So notice what it does. It raises him from the dead, number one. Number two, that power sets him at God's right hand in heavenly places. Notice Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is seated there because of the power that raised him from the dead. The same power that resides in you. Please notice that the power behind the throne of Jesus is the same power that dwells in you. Boy, you get your head wrapped around that, nothing will stop you in this world. See, everybody, every Christian accepts that God, oh, Jesus, yes, Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. Well, the Bible says the same power is in you. Can you do anything? Oh, dear Lord, no. Why not? You got the same power. See, in Matthew 28, when Jesus appears and says in verse 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth, that really meant something to him. I don't know what it means to you when you read it, but it really meant something to him. He's saying, I gained back the power that was lost through death, spiritual death. I regained that power. So what does he do? He commissions the church. He says, you go therefore into all the world. In other words, since the same power dwells in me, that dwells in me, that created my throne at the right hand of the Father, is the power that dwells in you. You've got the same resurrection power, 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 power dwelling in you. If you only come to, your, to, to the understanding that that's what you have, that same power is in you. I'll take care of things in heaven. You take care of things here on the earth. In other words, he restored man to a place of dominion, which was God's plan all along. God wasn't so concerned about the devil taking dominion because this is just a way for him to defeat his enemy as he restores man to that place of dominion. See, we try to get away from the devil. Some of the stuff going on, it's, it's um, well, I had to pray about this a little bit because I see things going on in the Middle East and the beheadings of these Christians and all that kind of stuff, and it's terrible stuff. There's no question about it. It's terrible stuff. It's so foreign to us. It makes us think that, that, the, that you know, this is stuff that happened hundreds of years ago and stuff. Well, folks, stuff like this has been going on all along. We're just too civilized in our bubbles trying to find out what the latest celebrity news is to realize what the real world is all about. But I see these things and, and I get a lot of emails and, and see some of the Facebook stuff where people are talking about praying that the persecution would stop and stuff like that. And I asked the Lord about it. And I said, Lord, how do you pray about this? And instantly he gave me a prayer. I just started speaking out loud a prayer. And it w- had nothing to do with that the persecution cease. But that the glory of God would drown the persecution. That God would reveal to his enemies the greatness of his power. See, these things are prophesied, folks. These things are said in the scripture that it's going to happen. I don't know if we'll get to that extent, but persecution is coming here too. Coming soon. What are we going to do? We're going to pray, oh, Lord, stop the devil from working against us. Or are we going to realize that when the devil rears his head, that's when the glory of God and the power of God is made manifest for the world to see? What do you think would cause a worldwide revival? What do you think would cause a flood of people coming into the kingdom of God? 
for God to stop the persecution so we could go back to business as usual. So it could say about politics. Or for God to show his power in the middle of persecution so that the enemies of God are thwarted. And people realize that the name of Jesus is the greatest name that there is. God didn't promise you flowery beds of ease till Jesus comes. In fact, he said things will get worse and worse. But he also said, I'm coming back for a glorious church. Well, wouldn't a glorious church be a church that's exercising authority? Could you be a glorious church if you're not exercising authority in the way that God intended? I don't think so. So anyway, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty, mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, number one, number two, and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places? Far above. Say far above. Now say all. Far above all principality and power and might. And dominion. I guess we could say four alls there. All principality and all power and all might and all dominion. That's what it means. And every name, not one left out, every name that is named, not only in this world but also in the ages to come. And hath put all things under his feet. Here's how far above Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God. And has put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head of the church over all things. Now I changed the wording there, but I did it on purpose. Because some people look at that and say, well, yeah, Jesus is the head over all things. Jesus. Oh, Jesus, do something about this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying Jesus was given to be the head of the church. Jesus seated in heaven is the head of the church, which is his body. Well, where is the body? Where is the church? Over all things. Why? Because verse 22, his body is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Do you realize what that's saying? The fullness of him that filleth all in all. Can I translate that for you in a little different way? His body which filleth, uh, filleth all in all literally means this. Which Jesus, as the head of the church, can't do anything except it's done through his body. The body is the fullness of him. You ever seen anybody's head do anything without the body? Nothing other than think. The head can come up with all kinds of plans, but if the body doesn't carry them out, what good are the plans? That's what the Bible's saying. The Bible is saying we've been raised, it says Jesus has been raised and seated at the right hand of God the Father, far above all principality and power and might. God set him there as the head of the church. And he seated him far above all things. Which means the church is seated far above all things. And the church is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Meaning Jesus, if he's going to get anything done here in this earth. Now heaven, he takes care of on his own. Anybody ever had Jesus ask you if he can take care, if you'll take care of something in heaven? Well, of course not. He said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. I'll take care of heaven, you take care of earth. God didn't make man to have authority in heaven. He made man to have authority on the earth. So his body, which is the church that fills all in all, very simply means Jesus, if he's going to do anything here on the earth, has to do it through his body. Which means we, if we're instructed of the Lord to do something, to exercise authority over the devil, and don't because we're afraid or whatever other reason, it means God's plans can't be accomplished. 
Can you see why it's so important for us to know who we are in Christ? So that when the Lord speaks to us to do something, whether it's something small in our estimation or something that supersedes the laws of nature, which we have example after example of in Scripture, we don't stop and think, oh, I can't do that. That can't be the Lord. Jesus, you're going to have to do that yourself. And he's sitting in heaven saying, I'm trying to. That's why I'm using you. I'm the head, you're the body. Chapter 2. And you hath he quickened. And you hath he quickened. Now this, grammatically, this was really tough for the, for the translators. Notice the phrase, hath he quickened. And you hath he quickened, which were dead in sins. Trespasses and sins. Notice the phrase hath he quickened is in italics. That means it's not in the original translation. There is no verb in verse 1. There is none. There is no verb. And you get all kinds of commentators and, and, uh, and, and theologians and whatever names you want to call people. That comment on this verse. They'll come up with all kinds of spiritual reasons and, and the Holy Ghost left this verse unfinished and stupid stuff. Just really dumb stuff. I mean stuff that it'd take a real educated religious person to come up with. But the fact is very simply this. Paul is telling us, is covering one thought. He's talking about the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and you. He's talking about the same power that made Jesus alive. Did two things. Number one, it brought Jesus back to life. Raised him from the dead, literally. It replaced spiritual death with life. The life of God, eternal life. And secondly, set him at the right hand of God the Father. And those are the verses. The, uh, the verse, What is that? Verse 20? Yeah, verse 20. Verse 20 is where the verb is. That connects chapter 2 and verse 1. Because it's saying at the same time that God did two things for Jesus through the exceeding greatness of his power, 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 power. God did two things. He raised Jesus from the dead and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 6, and has raised us up together to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Somebody once said, some commentator, some theologian said this. He said, there seems to be a parallel track between what God did for Jesus and what he did for the believer. He couldn't be more wrong. There is no parallel track. It's the same track. It's the same track. The same power that Paul is praying that our eyes would be open to that raised Jesus from the dead. You know what kind of power I mean? The four kinds of power. Power, 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 power. The greatest display of God's power ever recorded in Scripture. That's the power that dwells in you. It did two things. Number one, it raised Jesus from the dead and raised, uh, I'm sorry, it, uh, uh, yeah, raised Jesus from the dead, made Jesus alive from spiritual death. He made you alive. Secondly, it set Jesus at your own right, at his own right hand, God's own right hand, and raised you up together to be seated with him. Now, can I ask you a question? If we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, that means we share the same throne. 
Who in their right mind would think Jesus has greater power on the throne, the same throne that we're sitting on, than we do? The fact that he says that we're raised and seated together with Christ in heavenly places would have to mean that the same power that's available to Jesus now, all power in heaven and earth, is available to us now to the degree that he's delegated that authority and power to us. Now again, he hasn't delegated any heavenly power. I don't have the right to rearrange heaven. I don't have the right to make your mansion look like one thing or another or anything else. God's got heaven taken care of. We have no authority there whatsoever. But he did delegate authority to us on the earth. So the all power that's given unto me in heaven and earth, the the part of it that applies to earth, that's been given to you. Now, wouldn't it be stupid for the policeman to stand in the intersection and pray that the cars would stop? He doesn't pray. He doesn't stand out there and say, you know, yesterday I felt strong, but today it's just, I'm just not up to par. I'm not sure it's going to work. It's going to work not because of how he feels. It's going to work not because of what he thinks. It's going to work because of the power behind the symbols of his authority. Now, if we understand that about how things work naturally, when we understand that God, who created the earth with physical laws, with much greater logic and much greater order and much greater detail, than anything that we could come up with, why would we assume that spiritual laws are any different? I can't tell if I'm putting you to sleep or you're just thinking. I hope it's thinking. Although I have been known (laughs) to put my share to sleep. And you have he quickened and has raised us up together. Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter uh, chapter 2 verse 1 and chapter 2 and verse 6 is everything about why chapter 1 is important. If we just stop with saying, well, here's what God did for Jesus and here's the power that he has seated at the right hand of the Father, well, good for him. But what does that do for you? But chapter 2 tells what happened for you. That's why to us who believe is so important. Because you hath he quickened and has raised you up to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. What does that mean? That means to the degree that our spiritual eyes are open to see. And by the way, God's not just the only one that opens your eyes by himself. See, if we stop with that and we say, well, it's up to God. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad for the ones that God's opened their eyes, but he hadn't opened mine. Now, the reason... That he gave you the scripture. The reason he gave you this information. Is so that your eyes would be opened. But you got to take hold of it by faith. You got to take hold of it. You got to grab hold. You got to say now wait a minute. Here's what the Bible says I am. So I believe this is who I am. And that's where the fight starts. Because once you start trying to take hold of those things. That's where the devil says no you're not. That's not who you are. It may be who other people are. But you know you. It starts trying to give you all the reasons why you can't exercise authority while the power that backs up the name of Jesus won't work for you. But to the degree that you see it and act on it, you and I, just like the 70 were commissioned to go into other towns before Jesus, you and I have been commissioned 
to destroy the works of the devil here on the earth. To occupy till he comes. That's what that means. It means do the works of Jesus till Jesus gets here. The gospels show us what his works were. Healing the sick. Casting out devils. Exercising authority over the devil in, at every turn. Both in our own lives and in certain cases where others give us authority or permission to exercise that authority in their lives. That's what you're left here for. Otherwise, why'd God leave us here? Why not take us to heaven? Heaven's better than earth. Your best day on earth doesn't compare to a one moment in heaven. So why did God leave us here? To do the works of Jesus till he comes back. If he commissioned us to do those works without empowering us to do them, then he's an unjust God. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, Jesus said. Go ye therefore. Go ye therefore. You use my authority in the earth, I'll take care of it in heaven. Folks, this communion elements, this bread and this juice, represents the life that Jesus shed, the blood that he shed, the life that he sacrificed, so that you could have power, 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 power. So that you could know what God's plan is for your life. So that you could know what belongs to you because you're a child of God. And even though this is part of the inheritance that you have, Paul uh, identifies it, specifies it, separates it out and says, and that you'd know what is the power, 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 power that made you alive like it made Jesus alive and raised you to the right hand of the Father just like it raised Jesus. That's what this represents. To what degree do we give credit to that? I mean, is it just a casual thing? Yeah, Jesus died for our sins. For, it seems to me too much of the church seems to be that have that attitude. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins. Glad I don't have to go to hell. But things are pretty tough here on the earth in the meantime. When all the time, through these elements, the, what these elements represent, the sacrifice of Jesus, when all the time you are sent, commissioned, and ordained to destroy the works of the devil and the circumstances that he stirs up in life. That's what you're sent to do. Isn't it time that we started acting on that? Isn't it time we started accepting that this is the reality? It's clearly stated in Scripture. But then why don't we walk in it? Amen. Amen. Well, let's say.